Hello and welcome back to Execute. I'm really excited to jump into this episode with you. We've got some very good, very broad ranging questions. Everything from how to pay yourself, so important, to how to generate more leads, how to stop clients jumping in and try to derail the the process that you are confidently running, and how to navigate the complexity of government regulations in running your business. So all things from financial to marketing to service delivery, I'm really excited to to jump in. And thank you for, for sending in such great questions. So let's start with the how to pay yourself question. So important. And the question is, how and when to pay yourself when you haven't yet charged enough for your services. You're moving in the right direction, but how do you figure out how much to pay yourself and to have the confidence and the certainty that you can do this and it's not all, all going to fall apart? So I love this question. Where I'm going to start is here. So you paying yourself consistently is the difference between you running a business and having a hobby. So it's really, really important that from the jump, we start becoming financially empowered as the leader of our business. And I know that many of you view yourselves as creatives and designers, not as a CEO with a clear pulse on the money in the business. But when it comes to money, we have to look at what it means to be empowered with our money, aware of what's going on, and intentionally pricing in a way that means we can pay ourselves. And where this starts is by having a system. So you're aware of how much money you're making, spending, and therefore able to keep. And a book that I recommend to, to everybody, you'll have heard me talk about this before, but I, if you've not read it, I highly recommend you do, is Profit First by an American guy called Mike Michalowicz. Listen to it on audio. He's really fun. He's a really entertaining guy. And that will get you through what can be a slightly dry concept, but is an incredible system. And what I will do is just walk you through some of the kind of principles of Profit First, but I'm also going to give you guys a heads up. I'm currently working on a new program that is all about supporting you in becoming more empowered about money in your business. So I will share more about that when I'm able to do so. But while that's still in development, let me just give you the, the basics on profit first. It's essentially about creating a system where rather than seeing money coming in, spending a load of money on team, tech, whatever other expenses you've got, and then hoping that there might be some scraps left at the end to pay yourself, you flip that traditional accounting ratio and you essentially take the money that comes in, immediately put money aside for profit and your own pay, and then you use what's left to form the basis of the expenses that the business can sustain. So it's essentially flipping the traditional accounting system on its head and meaning that you're always taking your profit first, you're always paying yourself first, 
before you pay for anything else. And that's really going to tell you what the business can afford, because if you're not able to pay yourself and meet the expenses of the business, well, something has to shift probably in the pricing. So Profit First, I hugely recommend to you. And while you're enjoying that, while you go off and, and listen to that as your next as your next listen, I just want to, to say a couple of other things on this, which is we really need to run our business like a financially responsible CEO. So just because we don't always understand the numbers or know how to work a spreadsheet is not a good reason not to learn because when it comes to money, knowledge genuinely is power. We can, I speak to a lot of designers who, and so many, so many, when I say, well, what's your turnover? What's your profit? Have no idea. And sometimes I think we live in financial ignorance because we're afraid of what the financial reality will mean about us. So I just want to start by saying I'm really proud of you for asking this question because it shows that you're prepared to do the work to understand what needs to happen for you to pay yourself. A huge amount of the work around money is around mindset. You guys know that. But creating a system around money can hugely support the mindset piece and you feeling more empowered. Your relationship with money and you becoming more and more financially empowered as the leader of your business, it gets to be relaxed and it genuinely gets to be, be fun that you're understanding what's going on and you're feeling really good about it because you, you know the numbers and you can start seeing what levers you need to pull to shift things. But you have to go on a journey to get there. It starts off being an intention, which is you asking this question. Then it's about creating the system, the habit. And it's about practicing that every day, every month, every year. And then it becomes second nature. And then paying yourself simply becomes a given in business. So for me, I every week I'm looking at the revenue that's come in. And every month I'm doing a more, a deeper reconciling the numbers. What did I think was going to come in? What has come in? What needs to shift? What needs to change? Making sure that I'm logging any new expenses that have come up. You need to be really aware of your revenue, the amount that's coming in at the top, your expenses and your profit. And we want to be able to forecast our revenue and expenses. So we know what money is projected to come into and go out of our businesses. Profit First is a really, really great place to start with this. He'll go into the way of creating this system where you're understanding income, expenses, and profit in a really practical way. The system he'll set out does things that I don't have, I don't have in my setup. So for example, and this will all make sense when you actually read the book or, or listen to it. Mike Michalowicz recommends having completely separate bank accounts for profit, to, for your pay, to hold tax, VAT in, or, and then to have your main business expenses, day-to-day -day bank account. I don't do that. I don't think that's necessary. The book was written, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago. 
there are now really good bank accounts like Starling or Monzo, any of these banks that allow you to ring fence money within the same bank account can perform that function. So the way I run Profit First is the money comes in and then every month I am portioning off a percentage of every pound of revenue that's come in into profit, tax, money to pay myself, and then what is left forms the amount that I can use to pay the expenses in the business. But I do all of that within one bank account. So absolutely lean into the book because it will give you the system and it's fantastic. But just realize that there are different ways of putting your own spin on it. And absolutely feel free to bring back any further questions about this here because I'm really happy to to answer them either on how I'm implementing profit first or just generally money questions but educating yourself becoming financially empowered that is the key to making more money and having more money to pay yourself and set yourself up for that financial safety and abundance in future because once you've got this system up and running once you're able to project what money is going to come in all of that data is going to give you answers around what you can pay yourself and even if you can only pay yourself a little bit now, just the action of paying yourself is so, so important. It is so disheartening to work as hard as I know you're all working and not pay yourself at all. That's just not sustainable. So even if you're paying yourself less than you were making in a past career, less than you would want to be making, pay yourself what is realistic now and don't settle keep pushing it back, keep thinking, okay, well, if I want to take an extra £200 a month or £500 a month or £1,000 a month, what needs to happen? Because when you start looking at what the data is showing you and asking these kind of questions, it becomes obvious. It will usually always come down to pricing. It's, it's, It's very little to, for us, it's never going to be, we need to add more and more and more clients. It's going to come down to pricing, and the efficiency with which you're moving through projects so that you're invoicing faster than if you were going at a half the pace and you're able to start a new project sooner than you might have been. So it's being efficient in delivery and it's pricing well from the start. I'm going to leave this here and move to another question, but I really am happy to continue having this conversation about money and pay. So feel free to bring anything back if if, any of you if you want me to share more on what I'm doing around this okay let me go to the next question which is around generating leads so the question is practical things for generating leads I'm not getting enough leads at the moment most is coming through referrals I'm doing some networking I've had some flyers done Um, I'm reaching out to architects, I'm trying to find developers, but a lot have already got established relationships. You know, what else can I be doing? So what I'm hearing you say is that you have been having leads, but it's completely slowed down. So this could be about visibility. So not enough people seeing you or knowing who you are, Or it could be about how you're converting visibility into inquiries. So from people who've seen you actually thinking, 
yes, this is the designer for me and reaching out. And that is more about positioning and messaging. Do you see the difference? So visibility is nobody can see you. They just don't know about you. If it's positioning and messaging, it's that they can see you, but they're not convinced that you're the person for them. Okay, so we need to consider that it could be either of those things. I also want to take us back to our marketing ground rules. Number one, we cannot create a market out of people who should need what we do, even if they do need what we do. We have to consider that if there are people who just do not have the budget or the willingness to pay for our services, we might need to expand where we are. So that's something else to bear in mind. Are you in an area? Are you speaking to people who there just isn't the business there? Sense check that and just consider whether you need to expand slightly out of your immediate area. And then the other principle that I think is worth coming back to is the thing that you mentioned about, I've been contacting architects and trying to find developers, but a lot of them have got established relationships. This can be really um, triggering for us, this idea that how are we going to compete with this? How are we going to get in front of people when we've already, they've already got their go-to person? How are we going to get our foot in the door? Yes, the market may be saturated, but if your ideal client exists in your area and is already experienced in or warm to the idea of spending money on interior design because they're already doing this with architects, developers, you just need to identify your point of differentiation and show them how much better you can make the experience. So we don't want to shy away from competition. We want to use it to allow us to further differentiate and rise in our power and be even more keyed into how we do things differently from anybody else, why it will be better with us. The other thing I want to mention here, because we're all aware of, all aware of, but all completely clueless as to what on earth is going on in the economy, but something's going down. Every, you know, there's a feeling of it's all very uncertain. What's happening with house prices? What's happening with interest rates? What's happening with inflation? Nobody knows. Against this background of uncertainty, your clients are going to be asking, do we need to do this now? You know, we want to do our house, but do we need to do it now? I want to revamp my office space. Is now the right time really to be spending this kind of money? Could I spend this money better elsewhere? Would I be better paying into my pension or, you know, paying down my mortgage or, you know, doing whatever? People are thinking if they've got lump sums of money, they've been thinking about doing that work to their house. They're questioning, maybe I should be doing something else with it. They're also asking, am I going to get a return on investment? How confident am I that I'm going to get the result that I want? Is it going to be worth it? And all of these questions, clients are asking all of the time, but against a background of uncertainty, they're asking even more. So we need to be so dialed in with our messaging and really speaking to where our ideal clients are at, what they value, what they want and what they need. I genuinely believe people are always going to place a very high value on having 
a home that they love to be in, that feels comfortable, that has everything that they dream of for their relationship, for their family, whatever. Same with a workspace. If you've got a company there who, you know, they want to have people in, they want people to be coming into the office, it's feeling sad, it's feeling bleak, nobody's doing good work, nobody wants to come in, that's going to be a high priority to fix it. So we need to be really powerful in our messaging in front of these people presenting the solution. I can help you with this. I get it. I get where you are. I understand what you need. I can help you. And in terms of your networking, keep going. Keep asking, how how can I serve these potential strategic partners, architects, developers, and so on, just as much as they can support me? Because everybody is always thinking about themselves, ultimately. And with any kind of networking, we never want to just go straight to the, oh, hey, I'm an interior designer. Can you refer work to me? It's about asking how can we collaborate to position each other in front of potential clients? What's in it for them? Just as much, if not more, as what's in it for you. It is genuinely about a relationship and about being cool and human. It's never, and I know nobody in this membership is a kind of grabby, just out for themselves, but it is really about building the relationship. In terms, because what also came through in your question was just that I need to get cash into the business now. So I want to address that. Get creative. So just be thinking if right now it's a case of I need cash flow now. At the time I'm recording this, it's the middle of July. So what can you be offering and selling right now that meets your prospective client where they are during the summer months? and potentially gets them interested in doing more work with you later? Or can you offer something for free or for a lower price that then brings people into your services and gets them excited about giving you a bigger piece of work? So just really think, what are the ways that I can get in front of people and offer something now that either just immediately brings cash in, what might that be? What will be fun to deliver, but also means I can bring some money in? Don't overthink it. Just, you know, as I'm talking now, just think what's coming up for you? What's your gut instinct feeding back to you? And potentially what could be that if you're in this slower season and you don't have as much work as you would like to have now, well, what could you do as a marketing event and I say event loosely, it could be something online, it could be going live on Instagram, it could be an actual event, but just something that brings more awareness to your services and gets people excited about then lining up a project with you for later. Really think about what you might do, who would be the audience for that, and how you can quickly bring some energy to market that and get that underway. I'll finish on this question, but what I will just say is that so much of running a business is about building the muscles to do difficult things and to commit and stay committed, even in the face of little evidence that it's working. It's so much about being proactive, being open to experimenting, and we don't want to just be blindly carrying on when it's clearly obvious that something needs to change, that's not what I mean by staying committed. But I think that combination of looking 
systematically at every part of your sales funnel and thinking, well, what is working? Which parts are working? Okay, when I get people in front of me, I can convert them. So the sales part is working, but I don't have enough people coming in. Or people aren't converting because whatever reason they're giving you. So that's then about sales, but I've got enough inquiries coming in. So what do I need to shift in the sales part? We always want to be looking and asking good questions of ourselves and of our businesses. But at the same time, being committed to what we're building and thinking, we're, I'm in this for the long game. So how do we get through this, this short period now? What's on the other side of this is is going to be better. There's, we're never in the dip forever. There's always another side of this. Keep me posted. Let me know how it's going. I want to know. Okay, next question. So the question here is around how do you stop clients from taking on parts of the, the project themselves that they've asked you to do? So particularly with sourcing lighting, soft furnishing, sometimes furniture, this isn't just about losing out on commission because you know, you're charging well for design fees, good, but this is more about getting a unified design process and not just having a client go off-piste, 100%, 100%, so annoying. So <laughs> I think this starts with being so clear about how you work and what doesn't work and why. You've articulated this in the question. You've said, we to create a unified design, this means you not going off piste because that doesn't end up with something unified. It means a lot more work for you as the designer, which the client then has to pay for. And it means a design that loses that cohesiveness because they've thrown in something random. So it's about being really clear at the start. And as you guys know, I always like looking for what's the question behind the question. And what I'm feeling is that this is really about how to be more empowered and firm in communicating with clients and vetting potential clients. So creating standards around how you work and being prepared to walk away from a client or a project if they really have gone off piste. So I think that initial conversation being really empowered about the way you work and setting out those standards and not going, if a client's saying, oh, well, you know, I think I might do some mood boards or I think I might go and, you know, source some of these things, being so confident about saying that's not how we work. And if you want to do some of the designing yourself, then, you know, you'd probably be better doing it yourself or working with somebody else, being absolutely prepared to walk away from an unideal fit. But it sounds like you've already had this conversation because they've already asked you to do the work. So I think if they are getting overexcited and if they're running with something that you've been tasked with doing, again, that's just about an empowered conversation. It's about reminding them, hey, you know, I, I know this part of the design is really exciting and I, I, you know, I love that you're getting excited about it, but just, you know, it's so important that what we're creating feels cohesive and it's hard for me to do that 
if other things are coming in. So what I would suggest is let me go away. You know, I've taken all of your ideas. I've got everything now. Let me work that through. Let me come back to you. That's your chance to input. That's where you get to flex your creative muscles, client. And and also once you've turned the house over to them, they can do whatever they want with it. They can buy whatever bits of furniture they want, or they can go and buy an extra cushion and it doesn't matter, but they've asked you to do a job. And so I think if they, for whatever reason, if they're excited, if they're forgetful, if they were just walking past a shop and they couldn't help themselves, it's just about bringing them back and having that conversation in a really empowered way, which explains as you have in the question that ultimately the result isn't going to work as well and potentially it's going to create more cost because you're going to have to go back through your design to now accommodate the cushion or the sofa or whatever that they've gone off and chosen rather than just letting you do it all and as I say if you do have a client where it has completely derailed we never ever want to leave ourselves in a position where we're thinking, oh, I just have to continue with this client. It's only four more weeks. It's only two more months. It's only, you know, and counting down when we can finally get away from this client. If it is so difficult to be working with them, if the way that they're working and the extent to which they're derailing your process is so unsustainable and untenable for you to work with, be prepared to walk away. Be prepared to say, you know, I'm really excited that you're loving this so much. I don't feel like I can do the job that you've hired me to do if you're going to keep buying bits and pieces. So I think maybe it's better that we, you know, I let you take it on your own from here. Really happy with what we've done. Thanks very much. And be prepared to let that be the case. We never want to be in a situation where we're giving away weeks and months of our life to a really miserable process. So I hope that helps. Okay, the last question I have got is, it's a kind of legally delivery question. I've got a few thoughts on this. So the question is, I'm in the process of writing a contract for a new client and I'm using the BIID professional services contract. So British Institute of Interior Design as a template for that. I will be finding and coordinating a plumber, electrician, decorator. I'm unclear about my responsibilities under the CDM regulations. So there's a load, load more to the question, but essentially the, the question is, how do I go about putting my responsibilities into the contract? Where do I find information? The other thing I just want to pick up on what you've said is, I've spoken with the British Institute of Interior Design and they've suggested looking online. So I want to come back and address this. I'm going to preface my answer with the fact that, as you know, I am not a lawyer. I'm not a health and safety expert. I am a business coach who has run an interior design studio. And there are some things that I have learned and I have walked through. So I will share my thoughts. But you absolutely need to do your own research and learning about this and be certain in terms of your contract. You need to have that written by and checked by a lawyer. Cool. So from my experience, I would always, always say avoid taking on the role of principal contractor. 
have the client pay the contractor and the trades directly because under CDM regs, a contractor is anyone who directly employs or engages in construction themselves or manages construction work. So to be a contractor, you have to have the skills, the knowledge and the experience to carry out the work safely. And I don't know your level of construction knowledge, but I know I absolutely do not have the skills, knowledge or experience to do this role. I would always be passing the relationship directly between client and contractor outside of my studio. Let me just have some tea and I shall continue. In terms of the role of principal designer, so this is much more about planning and managing and coordinating the health and safety when you're in the pre-construction phase. So this is where you're creating a health and safety plan, looking at what risks there might be when you're doing the work, thinking what steps you need to take to reduce or control those risks, and knowing that everybody involved in the project has a copy of your, your plan, your health and safety, your risk assessment, and so on. Again, if there is somebody involved in the project who can do this role, for example, an architect, I would pass this to them. It's not a role that I would always want to take on. But sometimes, if there's no architect involved, you will just by default be the principal designer. So you may still have obligations under CDM. But the important thing is A, that you understand what your obligations are, but be so in integrity with where your skills lie and so prepared to say, this isn't what we do and think, how can I de-risk this for myself? And I would start coming back to where you've said, I will be coordinating the plumber, coordinate pool to an extent, as in you know, getting people on site, but not directly managing or paying, because that would put you as responsible for them. I want to come back to the point about the BIID. <laughs> Go and have a look online. This is a bit of a bugbear for me, because I genuinely feel that as a professional trade body, for the industry, they have a role to support designers in navigating extremely complex regulations, which have been written by lawyers and health and safety professionals, not and not really translated at all into lay terms for interior designers. They are confusing. I have read them at numerous different points and times in my career and dipped in and out and still never been totally sure that I'm on the right side of the law. I'm not an idiot. And I know that nobody here is an idiot. So that says to me that there is a gap in the way the information is being passed down from the health and safety executive through a professional trade body that's saying, oh, go and look online. That to me is unacceptable. And I really think <laughs> this is my call to arms. But we should be saying to the BIID, like, that's not okay. You're a professional body. You're the British Institute of Interior Design. This is government legislation. You need to be more supportive of designers. There are so many designers who come through design school being taught how to design, but not being taught how to navigate these regulations. And if the only support 
is about being told to go online and research it yourself. I, you know, I can tell you that because I'm a business coach, but they are a, a professional trade body. So I don't think that's okay. And I would be pushing back on that personally. I will I'll coordinate the call to arms if, if this has got anybody else up. I would love to know, genuinely love to know if when you're listening to this, if you're thinking, this is what I did, this is how I navigated this, this is what I do, drop me an email and I will I will circulate the information to you guys because I think supporting each other on this kind of thing is also really, really helpful and beneficial. But just so that you've got the information that you need to move forward on this project specifically now, what I would be saying is really look at how you can de-risk, how you can take yourself out of the role of principal as much as you possibly can if you don't feel that you've got the skills, knowledge or experience to perform that role. Unless you're really secure in that, just take yourself out of it. See where the, the client has responsibilities, where the contractor takes stuff on. If there's an architect, look at putting it onto them while you're just figuring out this is what I might need to do in other projects. But if you don't have those skills, avoid is my advice. Okay. I'm going to end here. Really, really good questions. I would love to hear your feedback on the answers I've given, what's landed, what's resonated, what feels good, any other thoughts that you've got. And I'm so excited to see your questions come in for the next episode. When submitting questions, please be concise. I don't need loads and loads of context and loads of background. If you're really clear, then I will be really clear in giving you answers back. So you could just start your question just literally saying, my question is, blah, let me know. So let me know what comes up for you from this one. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.